Let's turn to Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2. So before we get in, I just want us to come to this understanding, and I think it'll be clear as Peter goes through this last letter that he's writing. He's about to die. Nero's going to crucify him upside down. And he knows his time's near. He hasn't been shy about that. He says, hey, this is my time's near. I'm writing this letter to remind you guys of certain things. So last week we looked at some of his basic reminders, things to remember. Um, but tonight we're going to see, and I think it's going to come clear as we go through it, that Peter believes that our good works done on this earth in this life matter. That our good works matter. Now, sometimes I say that like, well, duh, that's not profound. However, we go through our Christian faith and we're told over and over and over that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. And that's true. But we can get in the mindset of, well, it doesn't matter. I'm saved by grace through faith. My works have absolute zero relevance. But Peter wants us to know tonight that our works matter do matter. Now, we will not be saved by our works, right? Our works will not save us, but God will save our works. They're not going to perish when we perish, nor are they going to evaporate when Jesus returns. So, My works will not save me, but God will save my works. So as he comes back, my works are going to matter. There's going to be rewards and there's going to be some carryover from the things that we do on this earth. The good we do for each other, the things we establish and the way we serve, these will last with us as Jesus returns. So we're going to see that and I want that to be in your heads. The problem, however, is that Peter's dealing with false teachers who have trickled in and he's looking at a time. Okay, I'm about to die. And in my absence, the vacuum will be filled with ambitious, hungry, false teachers who want to get their word out. So Peter's gone. False teachers come in. That's what he's seeing is going to happen. So he's going to give them advice on how to handle this. One of the things we're going to see from these false teachers is that they deny the return of Jesus. Therefore, our works on earth don't matter. We can live as we want. You just got to kind of have the whole gospel thing covered. And Peter's like, what? Okay, Jesus is returning. And when he returns, he is going to judge human beings on what they have done. The Christians will be rewarded for that. So... Peter wants to say, hey, these false teachers are putting a wrench in our whole how are we supposed to live message. So let's go ahead and look at what he has to say about these false teachers. Chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you. So back in the times of Israel, there are false prophets. When I die, there'll be false teachers. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago 
is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. So they're coming. He warns. He says that they deny their master. Uh, I love how one translation says that they bite the hand that fed them. They turn against the savior that gave them salvation. So we see that these are people who once at least knew the gospel, but now they're going against it. It says that their way is blaspheming the truth. So they're making Christianity look bad in the way that they live and what they're teaching. Um, And in their greed, they want to exploit you. Now at the end in verse three, that whole their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. That's just Peter's way of saying what we would simply say, God's not going to let them get away with it. Their judgment will come. So we see a little bit about what they teach and it's not for Jesus, but that's about it. Peter's not going to show us much about what they teach. And you're going to see, he's going to emphasize more on what they do to identify the false teacher. Now in verse four, This is where he's going to show us. They're not going to get away with this. God always judges the unrighteous and he will judge them. So verse four, he gives us three examples. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Example two, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, When he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Example three. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord, so if he knows how to judge these people and save Lot, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the righteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially, verse 10, Those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So they're not going to get away with it. He ended in verse three because verses four through 10, we have these examples of how in the past people were judged for their unrighteousness. The first example is a strange one. The angels. What did the angels do? And they're thrown into deep hell with chains on them. The New King James calls it TARDIS, some place like that. And it's basically just they're they're imprisoned. God has them in a holding pattern until judgment. And these are the angels. It's believed these are the angels whom Genesis 6 mentions were the ones who went around copulating with human women and creating a monstrous descendants upon the earth that these angels broke the boundaries and went to be in the human world and have relationships with human beings and that these angels were punished and put in reserve until the end of time so look if even angels aren't getting away with disobedience then you have the ancient world when god brought the flood to punish them And then you have the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. With their filth, God brought fire down upon them. So the pattern of history has been God doesn't let the unrighteous get away with what they do. So these false teachers won't get away with what they do. Will your judgment come in your lifetime? 
It may not always come in one's lifetime, but God will make sure that unrighteousness is dealt with. That's what he warns. So don't worry about these false teachers. They're going to do their thing, recognize them, but know that they're not going to get away with it. In the same breath, he says that while the unrighteous are judged, the righteous are rescued and rewarded. And he gave us the example of Noah and his families who built the ark. The floods came that judged others, but raised them up over that judgment. And then uh, Lot. Lot was part of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And while the cities were destroyed, Lot was rescued. So we see a pattern that Peter is establishing from the Old Testament for us today. The unrighteous will face judgment. The righteous will be rewarded. Now, he reemphasizes his attention back on the false teachers. Now that we know they're just a flash in the pan, one little spark of fireworks on the 4th of July, they're going to have their time and they're going to fizzle out. He's going to give us some pretty graphic descriptions of how they live. If you want to really get uh, just a... Uh, just a portrait, a real living portrait of these people, go read a colorful translation. It would be worth your time. I will read to you from the English standard, which is not quite as colorful as some. So in the middle of verse 10, we get our description. Remember, he's not going to emphasize doctrine. He's going to emphasize their deeds and their works. So they're bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So look, they're going around blaspheming those whom angels wouldn't even blaspheme. Wow, these guys are very arrogant. They're very bold. They're very full of themselves. Whereas um, verse 12, these false teachers are like irrational animals, creatures of instinct. They just kind of act on the impulsive animal nature within them. And so much like animals, he says they are born to be caught and destroyed. Like gazelle to be hunted, like rabbits to be caught and skinned. They are born to be caught and destroyed. Blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. So, hey, you know, you can't believe that and that. Like, they don't even know what they're talking about. Suffering wrong as the wage. Blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction. Verse 13, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Or in other words, just to indulge in pleasure. It, things that people do at nighttime, they're just like, ah, oh, whatever, day, night, let's just, we're just going to indulge in pleasure. Um, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. So there they are at dinner Calvary Chapel, Twin Peaks, Sunday night, 5 o'clock p.m. You're eating pizza. And did you know it? There he is. He's reveling in the daytime. But at nighttime, he's eating with you at church. The Lord spoke to me, brother. <laughs> See, and this is Peter showing that, look, they're, they have all this going on, but they're going to pretend all along that they're right here with us. I'm not saying that they're here with us now. Who am I to know? So don't go snooping in someone's Bible and finding all the sections they cut out or something. 14, they have eyes full of adultery. Wow. This isn't just, we just have adultery. They, their eyes are looking for adultery. Insatiable for sin. 
sin, it just, it's not even satisfied. They just keep drinking like a camel in the desert. They entice unsteady souls. So they pick off the ones who are unstable. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. Even a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So these guys are like Balaam. You might remember him in numbers, um, how he was hired by the king of Moab to go and curse the Israelites. And he's like, eh, I don't feel like doing it. And then the king ups the ante. He says, uh, I'll give you twice as much gold. And he's like, okay, I'll go. And so he goes. And on the way, the donkey stops and won't let him go forward. And he's like, finally, the donkey has to tell him because Balaam starts beating his donkey. Why don't you move, you stupid animal? And the donkey says, uh, because there's an angel waiting to kill you and I'm saving your life because you're not supposed to be doing this. And so Balaam has his eyes open. He's like, oh my goodness, God, I'm sorry. So he goes and rather than cursing Israel, he blesses Israel. But he did tell the king of Moab how to get the children of Israel to fall astray. Send women in that will marry the little young Israelite men and get them to worship that their worship services and so that their idolatry will come into Israel and then they will be all messed up. And indeed that happened. So Balaam for gain went ahead and led people astray. And that's what these guys, these false teachers will do. Now, it sounds harsh, but you have to remember that Peter is talking about people who were Christians who have intentionally given away what they know to be true to twist the truth. This is intentional. This isn't that God is going, that God has such a, negative mean view of anybody who has ever had adultery human beings sin and god is gracious and he offers forgiveness but these people are different kinds of creatures so don't take away from this oh god sees people as animals running around ready to hunt them like he's up there with a bow and arrow (laughs) watch this one (laughs) that's not god's heart but when people intentionally turn against the truth and spread falsehood That is how Peter is describing them. He continues in verse 17. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. So a spring should have water and a storm should at least dump rain. But the spring has no water and the storm has no rain. So they're both very annoying and they disappoint your hopes. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Or uh, one translation says the black hole of hell. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever does, uh, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So they think, oh, we've got liberty. We do whatever we want. And Peter's like, actually, they just do whatever their lusts tell them to do. So they think they're free, but they're actually slaves to their lust. So don't buy their liberty, man. Morals are going to tie you down. Just follow us. Peter's saying, think about that for a minute. The man who does what he, what he wills in the freedom of God is the man who's free. 
because he doesn't have to do what his animal passions tell him to do. For if, verse 20, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For if, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit. That's Proverbs 26, verse 11. And the pig, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. And that's not from the Proverbs. It's probably just a common proverb. Like we say, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not break. It's not in the Proverbs, but it's a proverb, right? So they are, they were washed by Christ and then they just ran back into the pigsty. And they ate their own vomit. That's how Peter sees them. So that's the problem we have. False teachers who say our works don't matter because God's not going to return and judge us. But on the other hand, Peter's saying, no, I will say more in a minute. Our works do matter that though I am not saved by my works, God will save my works that they will be rewards for me at the end of time, that what I do in this present is not overlooked. Humans might overlook what I do, but God doesn't overlook what I do. God doesn't overlook what you do. He is going to keep all those in mind when he returns to reward his righteous servants. Just like he's not overlooking what the false teachers do, you see? So his return is going to be uh, momentous. Now, these false teachers are some crazy people uh, who denied that Jesus is returning. So therefore, we don't have to do works. So what Peter now wants to do, these are some of his very last words. Chapter 3, we're at his last words. Uh, He wants us to remember Jesus is coming back. Don't let experience or your Life that is getting longer and longer without his return. Don't let scoffers, don't let scientific discoveries, don't let theologians who return to their vomit, don't let them tell you that Christ is not returning. Peter's, one of his last words here is he's coming back. So now we're going to look at it. Chapter three, verse one. Now this is the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved in both of them, and we studied First Peter just a few weeks ago, so we're very familiar with both now. Uh, in both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come. In the last days, with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So like these false teachers, they're scoffing. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water 
and through water by the word of God. And that by means of the, of these waters, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So the scoffers are going to come and they're going to say, hey, look, he's not come. It's been 2000 years. You silly Christians have been saying he's going to return. He still hasn't returned. I looked at one author I've read before in the past. I looked at another book he's written and suddenly I said, oh, this is interesting. He says in the book that Jesus is already returned. (laughs) That we're not actually waiting for his return, but that he returned in spirit through the destruction of Jerusalem. And that this is it. We are the kingdom where we're supposed to build it. And we're supposed to make this world a harmonious, happy place. Um, This is in Christian circles. They say this. They say that the coming is we're waiting for something futile. But Peter says the scoffers will be there. So don't buy them. Now, he relates to how uh, they overlook the fact that in the first creation, if you will, back in Genesis 1, That God, we see in Genesis 1 verse 2, that there was darkness and the spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And then God began to speak. And we saw that light came and then those waters were divided. And then earth came up out of those waters. And we, those waters collected in the seas and dry land became earth. And he began to fill all of this with fish and birds and vegetation and animals and humans. And then he says, but remember that those waters through which God made the world, while they subsided, he let them rise back up and it flooded the whole world. Now, when it says in Genesis 1 verse 2 that the spirit of God hovered over the waters, the Hebrew is ruach, that the ruach of God was hovering over the waters. And ruach is the word that they use for spirit, for breath. For wind, those three, spirit, breath, and wind. Now, when the flood waters came up and flooded the world, it says in Genesis 8 that God sent a wind over those waters. The Hebrew is, surprise, ruach. So that what we have is actually a second creation of sorts. Not that God recreated the world, but in, when the waters subsided after Ruach flew over them, they go back down like in Genesis 1. We have, in a way, a new world. It's still the same earth, but it's a new world because the evil has been cleansed out of it. And Adam, Noah, and his wives, who are like a new Adam and Eve, with the animals, re-inhabit the creation. Of course, they mess up, just like Adam and Eve did as well. But what Peter is doing to them is saying, hey, don't overlook the fact that the world has already gone through this cataclysmic change once before. That it can totally happen again when Jesus comes back. So all we have to do is look at the past to establish a pattern for the, for the future. So he says in verse 7, the difference is that while water was used to cleanse the world the first time, it wasn't quite thorough enough. So God's going to use fire to cleanse the world the second time at the return of Jesus. That sounds scary, doesn't it? Like, and we're looking forward to this? Well, let's keep going. Verse 8. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day 
is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now, I don't know if Peter's being scientific with this verse or if he's simply making a point that God lives outside of our time. I don't know if it literally means that God's been up in heaven and it feels like it's only been two days since Jesus rose from the dead. I, I mean, I don't know if that's like literally what he's saying. Like to God, like, you know, God, like, give him a month at least. And like, what? That's thousands of years from now. It's not saying that. It's just saying he's outside of our time. So what feels like ages for us, God's like, this is going right according to schedule. We are impatient people who want quick and easy solutions. Staples really hits on this with their ad campaign some years ago, right? The big red button that says that was easy. That's our human nature. And we want things to be like that. Hit the red staple button. Jesus is back finally. No, that's not how God does it. So Peter's reminding us, hey, don't lose heart just because you've been living your whole life. And the church has been living for 2000 years without his return. Uh, so the reason for this delay, verse nine, is that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's why we're waiting. There are people out there who need the gospel. Now, let me do an experiment uh, how many of you have been saved for 10 years? Raise your hand. How about 20? How about 30? How about 40? And now you guys are like, I don't want to keep my hand up. <laughs> All right. So let's do like, what if Jesus came back in 1950? Who, who in here would be a Christian? <laughs> that person's like, I am not raising. So we would have one, two Christians in this room. That's extraordinary. But look at how many more there are now. And we can credit God's patience toward that. So think about if he came back tomorrow, who, who might be saved in this next week? And that's the burden we need to have as we go forward is, I'm not in heaven right now, so that... People can come into the kingdom of God. That's why we're left here. Otherwise, when you get saved, you'd be teleported. Now, in verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now that phrase, the day of the Lord, a very, very popular phrase with the prophets in the Old Testament, always refers to the future coming of God to the earth. So that day of the Lord, and it has a lot of things it talks about. It has, it has a lot of destruction it talks about. It has a lot of good it talks about, like healing the world. Uh, so that day of the Lord, Peter's pulling back on. It will come like a thief. Unexpected, unannounced. Uh, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be burned or exposed. 
Before I get into this verse, I need to clarify. I need to do the dirty work here. This is very rare in scripture. So when it comes up, you got to do it. Uh, all of your Bibles should have a footnote on that word burned or exposed. The last word of verse 10. And it should tell you at the footnote that other manuscripts say whatever yours doesn't say. Okay, so mine reads that the works done on earth will be exposed. Footnote, some manuscripts say burned up. The New King James says the works will be burned up. Footnote, some manuscripts say uh, laid bare, which is the same as exposed. You see that? So this is to make a nerdy uh, scholarly conversation real short. Reader Digest version. This is what's up. There are two sets of manuscripts. And the New King James follows what's called the Textus Receptus. And that is a large group, thousands of manuscripts. And they say uh, that the works done on earth will be burned. But then there's this other category of manuscripts that other translations have included in their studies and translating. It's a smaller collection of manuscripts. But these manuscripts are interesting because they're older than these Textus Receptus manuscripts. What does it matter that they're older? Well, that they're older means that they're closer to the original date of writing, which means there's less cause for possible copy mistakes. Um, the problem is that they're a small collection. So the debate goes like this. When translate, and this, by the way, the, the, the two sets of manuscripts, that's where they differ. The smaller, older ones say that the works done on earth will be exposed. The larger, majority ones that are slightly younger say that the works will be burned up. Now, the debate, when you're a translator, you say, well, is it exposed or burned up? What you got to do is say, uh, do we trust the majority of the manuscripts or do we trust the older manuscripts? And that's a hard one to, to pit yourself against. Now, rest assured, th this is like 0.1% of the New Testament has this problem. Like we're at one of them. It very, uh, very rarely is it a major change in these manuscripts. But this is one where it might actually change the way you read verse 10. So you got to know that there's both options presented to us. So the works that are done on earth will either be exposed or they'll be burned. But I think when I'm done with this message, you'll agree that really both of them read the same way. Okay, so in verse 10, so we see that he comes and there's this great fire. Fire like water was upon the earth before, fire coming on the earth. Now, to not get this confused with the rapture, the way the rapture works is that Jesus comes for his church and takes the church out of the earth. Then he comes to the earth with his church to the earth at the very end, his final return. What Peter's talking about is the very end, his final return when he comes with his church to the earth. That's what Peter's talking about. This is the very, very end. Jesus comes to the earth and everything is judged and everything is brought to be glorious. So that's what we need to understand, okay? So this fire upon the earth is when he comes back. And in the text of what Peter's writing, this is the way that God will judge the earth, is with fire. The question that we need to ask ourselves when we hit this verse is, how far will this fire go? How far will this fire go? On one hand, it would appear that this fire goes all the way, obliterates the earth, that this earth will be kaboom. 
And uh, many commentators uh, Warren, I'll ones you're probably familiar with because they're at our back table. Warren Wearsby and Vernon McGee, for example, describe this as an atomic sort of destruction. Not that bombs will do it, but that the splitting of atoms across the cosmos will bring everything into this completely devastating fire and it will be gone. We have passages like Psalm 102. In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, God. They will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be discarded. Luke 21, verse 33. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And then this verse in Second Peter, that fire will come and dissolve everything. It will burn it all up. However, though fire destroys, it is equally true in scripture that fire purifies. So there's this other option presented to us that maybe Peter's talking about a fire that doesn't destroy the earth, but cleanses the earth. And there are actually a number of reasons for this proposal as well. Uh, Let me go through them and then we will conclude this concept, weigh the differences. So seven reasons for... The earth, the fire coming to the earth as cleansing the earth and not destroying the earth. They are these. First, Peter himself in another passage suggests that the earth won't be destroyed. I'm telling you about Acts chapter 3, verse 21. This is Peter's sermon in the Temple Mount. He says this. Uh, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So Peter there in the sermon in Acts says that God is going to come and restore everything, not hit the backspace button and delete it. Second, the context tells us about the flood. Right here in the verses above, we saw how there was a flood that flooded the whole world. And what we see in the flood is that the planet didn't go away. And then God sort of just held Noah and his family while he recreated a new planet and then put them on that planet. The flood waters were on the same planet, removed the wickedness, and then brought the humans to a cleansed planet. Third, Paul teaches that the earth is going to go through a restoration and a rebirth. In Romans chapter 8, I read this to us before we started tonight. He has this interesting uh, thing in here where he's linking our destiny. He says how we're groaning and we're waiting with creation for the redemption of our bodies. When Jesus returns and raises us from the dead and gives us our eternal resurrected bodies that will live with him forever... Paul, in this passage, links our destiny with the destiny of creation. 
I don't know if you heard it when we started, but I will read to you some of it. Romans chapter 8, verse 19. Uh, we see that creation's destiny is linked with our destiny. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. We want to see who the sons of God are when Jesus returns. And creation sitting right next to us going, yes, yes, Jesus, come back and bring your children out so that we can have something happen to us. In verse 21 of Romans, he also says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That when we receive the freedom, when Jesus returns, the creation will be set free from its bondage and it will join us in that freedom. So Paul's linking our destinies together, that they happen at the same time. Creation will be set free from bondage to corruption. It says there in Romans 8, 21, um, as I just read, that bondage to corruption, that decay, that death. God's going to say, creation, be free from that. Live as you were meant to live in a way that we haven't seen yet. And then in uh, verse 20, Paul says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. What does that mean? The creation was subjected to futility, but not willingly. It means that creation didn't join Adam and say, hey, we don't like our maker, rebel. The creation was sitting there yearning for Adam and Eve to keep ruling in a godly way. But when Adam and Eve turned away and the curse fell upon the earth, the creation was an unwilling participant. The creation received the curse without deserving the curse. The creation was innocent. So Paul teaches that God wants to free creation from this unfortunate bondage that it has been subjected to by Adam. Four, Revelation condemns the earth's destroyers, not the earth. Revelation 11 verse 18 says that God is it's the moment where Jesus is coming. It's the seventh trumpet or it's like really soon to when he comes. And it says the time has come for him to destroy the destroyers of the earth. Not the earth. So again, the creation is innocent. The earth is innocent. It's the destroyers of it who are guilty. Fifth. Uh, the word new, when we read that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, that's a word that means superior. It doesn't mean it's new in the sense of I got a new car and my old one's getting put in the trash. It's a sense of transformation that when you have an old phase and become a new phase, the new phase is superior to the old phase, but it's still the same thing. For example, a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. It's a new phase, but it's still the same caterpillar. It's just far superior. That's what new means in the Greek when it says new heavens, new earth. It's a superior. It's an improved. It's a renovated heavens and earth. For example, Paul uses this word in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. He who is in Christ is a new creation. Now, when I came to Christ, I didn't like walk out of my skin and leave it there and like, whoa, that's trippy. 
I'm a new person. It wasn't like that. I'm still the same flesh and blood as I was before Christ, yet I'm called new because I've been transformed into a superior phase of my former self. See, it wasn't that God said, okay, kill that Brandon, kill that body and give him a new one right now. I'm the same person, but I'm being transformed. I'm being renewed. And that's the same word. So to be consistent, if God is making us new, then wouldn't he make the earth new the same way? We're both created beings. Number six, God is a redeemer. Which means he's someone who buys back. I'm going to read you guys this quote. I thought it was uh, powerful. In his redemptive activity, God does not destroy the works of his hands. But cleanses them from sin and perfects them. So that they may finally reach the goal for which he created them. So, I mean, look, I was a failure. Adam was a failure. Eve was a failure. You're a failure. (laughs) And God didn't say, all right, that's it. Wipe them out. I'll start a new race of humans. He threatened to do that with Israel, but Moses said, no, 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 no. That's not like you. You're a redeemer. See, he doesn't wipe us out. He cleanses us. He purifies us. The quote continues. Apply to the problem at hand, this is on this passage here in in Peter, apply to the problem at hand, this principle means that the new earth to which we look forward will not be totally different from the present one, but will be a renewal and glorification of the earth on which we now live. God, as he buys us back because he loves us, wants to buy the earth back, the universe back because he loves it. We are the work of his hands. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it in us. The universe is the work of his hands. So either there's consistency or there's inconsistency. If Jesus went through death and resurrection and we are going to die and be resurrected, then why wouldn't the earth go through death by fire And resurrection as an aftermath, as a result of that fire. And if God redeems wicked humanity, how much more an innocent earth? And seventh, finally. (laughs) God wins, not Satan. No, but think about this. Think about this. What would it say if God had to hit the backspace on this planet because of the sin in it? It would say this powerful quote again. If God would have to annihilate the present cosmos, Satan would have won a great victory. Satan would have succeeded in so devastatingly corrupting the present cosmos and the present earth that God could do nothing with it but to blot it totally out of existence. Like, wow, this trash heap, I can't do anything with that. Just Let's just kick it. Well, Satan's like, whoa, look what I did. I made God give up on his original work of his hands. He couldn't even redeem it. I so ruined it. Ugh. And then it it finishes like this. But Satan did not win 
such victory. On the contrary, Satan has been decisively defeated. God will reveal the full dimensions of that defeat when he shall renew this very earth on which Satan deceived mankind and finally banish from it all the results of Satan's evil machinations. That's powerful. And this is what I've learned in my life. The gospel is surprising and it never ceases to surprise me that God would become human flesh is surprising. You know what it says is it says being human isn't your problem. (laughs) I'll become a human to be with you. The flesh human body flesh flesh and blood not paul's use of that word but your your body that's not a bad thing don't believe plato and the greeks when they say it's about liberating yourself from the body just be a spiritual floating thing the body's important so much so that i will take on a body to be with you to show you how to use that body and raise from the dead in a body so that you will come to join me in a body on a new heaven and earth that is physical that is a renewed planet that we're on now the gospel's surprising in that. The gospel's surprising in that the God of the universe comes to save us, not with a big flash of a swinging sword, but by the stretched hands of a crucified criminal. Jesus on the cross, saving the world that way? That's surprising. That's not how I would write the script. The gospel's surprising that when God dies, God comes back to life. Maybe that's not as surprising. <laughs> but everybody thought he's dead. And he comes back to life. The gospel is not something humans would make with their rationale. And then it surprises me at the very end when we think that this earth is good riddance and we can't get, wait to get rid of it. God says, not so fast. I love my planet and I'm going to restore it like I restored Jesus, like I restored you, like I will restore the works in my hands. And they're going to be like you've never seen them. We don't know what creation can do because it's been subjected to bondage. But wait till it, God's like, wait till it's free. Wait till you see that. That's what the new heavens and the new earth, heaven will be like. The gospel's surprising and I've learned not to predict it, to manage it, but to let it be the wild lion that it is. God loves to recycle anyways. As Genesis 50 verse 20 says, when Joseph was condemned to slavery from his brothers and he went through that whole hardship and he becomes king of Egypt, second to Pharaoh. uh, So almost king of Egypt. He's ruling over Pharaoh's affairs. He's saving the world with food because everyone has a famine and his brothers come for food and he has a power to annihilate them. But instead, the brothers fearful Joseph, he comes to them and says, what you intended for evil, God has brought out good from it. Why does evil happen in the world? I don't know. But God doesn't just say, you know what? Stop everything. Erase it all. Let's start over. God just says, you know what? Evil's happening, but I am using it to make good. I'm recycling all the events in your life. I'm redeeming them. I'm renewing them. I'm transforming them. Good is going to come out of all of this. And really brilliantly, Genesis ends with that saying, as if to end the book, To say the way it started with the fall of man isn't the end of the story. What humans meant for evil, God's going to make all this beautiful again. 
it's almost like Joseph's statement isn't about his situation, but it's about the earth's situation. Well, fire destroys, fire purifies. And that's what we've seen. Now, what do you do with passages, though, that sound like the earth is temporary, that sound like it's going to fade away and be destroyed? What you do with those passages is you realize what it's actually saying is that the earth in its present condition, the earth as it stands now will pass away. That will not last The way that evil rules, the way that creation is dying, the way that humans are wicked, that earth will not last. But we will see finally this earth live the way that it was supposed to live without evil, without bondage, without wicked human beings. That's what's going to fade away. It's just the present system, the present condition as it is now. It won't last And we can look forward and say, yes, this is temporary. This is passing. God is going to recycle all of this and use all of this to make it beautiful and glorious. And so as we come back now, full circle, back to 3 verse 10, where we see that the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed or will be burned. I think it means the same thing. That the works done here, whether they're false teachers or my good works, they're going to be burned. But in the burning, they're not going to be annihilated. They're simply going to be exposed for what they really were because the fire purifies. And if my body goes into heaven and if this earth goes into heaven, well, more like heaven comes to it. uh, If all this is going on and Jesus is there in his body, Does it not make sense that our works carry over? What is destroyed are the bad works. The fire is going to purify the works. So that the works of the false teachers, and hence Peter's been emphasizing not their doctrine, but their works. A little bit about their doctrine, but a lot of what they do. That stuff will be burned. We won't remember those things. The Holocaust, gone, consumed, Your divorce, the thing your kid said to you, these things gone, annihilated. But the good works purified because the evil that surrounds them and overshadows them gone, removed so that they are now shining in their glory. The time that you gave your years to help an ailing person or you gave all that money that nobody knew about to that person that needed it. You took someone into your home And people thought you were crazy. These remain like God's works remain. Our works remain. My works will not save me, but God will save my works because God will save the earth. God will save me. He will save you. And everything that's done for him matters. It is not going to just, it's all going to burn anyways. That's true about dumb stuff, but that's not true about God's stuff. And I wonder how much of us will remain in the new heaven and new earth once the fire test goes. It's not a new concept. It's not like I'm trying to unveil something brand new. Peter, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, where he, he talked about building on the foundation of Christ. Some building with sticks, stubble, and hay. 
others building with gold, silver, and precious stones. And he says that as the people are building on the foundation, the fire will come to test what sort of materials they built with. And the wood, hay, and stubble burned, gone. They didn't stand the test because they were done out of selfishness. They were done unrighteously. They were done out of the flesh, now the ego. But the gold, silver, precious stones were not just enduring the fire, but as all precious metals, they were purified by the fire. And the fire became the test. Will the works stand or not? That's again, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. With all that said, now you can hear what Peter's encouraging them to do in verse 11. 311. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Go do good works, he says. Not merely so you escape judgment. Go do good works so that you have something in the new heaven and new earth already there. That's mine. I did that to the glory of God. Do we have any stock? Have we been doing that through our works of righteousness? Peter's encouraging, knowing this, what sort of lives will you live Waiting, verse 12, for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. And again, you could read that as they're being purified. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So go do righteous works. Go do good works. Because in that new heaven and new earth, that's where they dwell. They might be overlooked here and they might feel insignificant. Like, why am I? I could be like those false teachers doing whatever I want, carousing in the daytime. But Peter's saying, if you keep thinking about what God's going to do in the future and restore and renew everything and purify it with fire, you're going to want to do as many good works as you can right now because our good works will last. God will save those good works. They are going to go with us. They're going to be the head of us, welcoming us. He's encouraging us. That's where they dwell. Righteousness dwells there. The fire takes away everything that's not righteous. Therefore, beloved, verse 14, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, and I've already read you two passages from Paul, also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Side note. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. (laughs) If you ever felt that way reading Paul, well, join Peter. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand. So remember, he's like about to die. So you know all this beforehand. I've warned you it's coming. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people. And lose your own stability. But rather grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. 
Amen. So we've seen this thing about false teachers, and I totally almost just went on this rant about doctrines and stuff. Um, but I didn't in my preparation because I noticed that Peter didn't actually have a lot to say about it. He had a lot more to say about works. And it just makes us have to stop right now and ask this question. Do my beliefs encourage good works? Or do my beliefs discourage good works? And I don't think any of us would admit on the surface. Oh, yeah, my beliefs, like, I don't believe people should do good works. <laughs> I don't think anybody would admit that on the surface. But we apply certain doctrines in such a way that we allow them to justify our laziness in good works. For example, not, this is a way not to use a doctrine. I don't need to work on that because the rapture is going to happen really soon. And that's not an isolated case. So may you guys be grown and encouraged in the knowledge of Jesus to receive what he is doing, this redeeming, powerful, restoring work that we may give him glory forever and ever. May you guys be free to go do good works, knowing that these will stand and last forever and ever and ever. And if there's anything you want to do that lasts, I want to leave a legacy. Well, Peter says your legacy is in your good works. And know for certain that God treasures them and is not going to just cast them by the wayside. That's reserved for false teachers and their life. We, however are going to live in the place where righteousness dwells.